Welcome to the RHA podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Ian Gillespie, Group Chief Executive Officer at RACQ Limited. It's wonderful having you along today to this Aratape podcast, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this interview with Ian Gillespie to you. However, before I introduce Ian, let me just briefly introduce myself for those people who are new to the Aratape podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Aratape Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can be of any assistance to you, please reach out to me and I look forward to seeing how we can help. Let me now introduce to you Ian Gillespie. Ian Gillespie is the Group Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Automobile Club of Queensland Limited, known as RACQ, a public company limited by guarantee and mutually owned by its 1.5 million members. RACQ is an iconic Queensland organisation that provides an extensive range of products and services to its members in all part of the state, with annual sales revenue exceeding $1 billion. Ian is a highly experienced corporate executive with a background in law. His career path has included advisory, functional and line management roles and has covered a broad range of industries with extensive international experience at general manager and CEO level, as well as currently being the Group Chief Executive Officer at the RACQ Limited. He's also a Director at the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, a Director at the Confederation of Australian Motorsport, a director at the RACQ Foundation and vice chairman at the Global Mobility Alliance. Ian lives with his family in Brisbane, Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Ian Gillespie. So, Ian, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's uh, wonderful to have you along and uh, looking forward to this conversation with you about your career. Perhaps to begin with, for the benefit of the people who are listening in, just have a chat to us about your current range of professional responsibilities. Well, I'm currently the group CEO of RACQ and have, oh, this is my 10th year right. as, as CEO. Uh, in addition to that, I have a, a number of other responsibilities that relate to my role but are outside of RACQ so these okay. are, are businesses that we're either um, part owners of or interested in or associations that we belong to so okay. uh, for example uh, I'm a director of the Australian Automobile Association mm-hmm. which is the peak body for the automobile clubs in Australia that has an office in Canberra that uh, represents us to the federal government mm-hmm. on issues like road safety and um, road funding that sort of thing uh, matters of public policy. Uh, I'm chairman of Australian Motoring Services Proprietary Limited, which is a company jointly owned by the auto clubs that contracts with car manufacturers to supply roadside assistance. So you know when you buy sure. a, a, a 
a Holden and it comes with um, three or four years of free uh-huh. roadside assistance, we're supplying that. Right, okay. Uh, that company also owns the uh, accommodation rating guide, the star ratings mm-hmm. program. It has a travel business, it has a publishing business. It really operates in the background to um, supply the national needs of the auto club so we don't do it six different ways. Okay. Uh, I'm on the board of a company called Intellimatics, which is quite exciting. So this is a, a company, again, jointly owned by the clubs, which is operating uh, globally now, uh, which is developing telematics products uh, for connection between cars and cars right. and members and supplying originally traffic uh, information, but now doing a whole lot of other okay. much more exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just had its... Um, its technology embedded in the head units of every new Ford in America. Wow, So okay. it's uh, quite a meta step forward. I know that you're particularly passionate about technology. I am particularly passionate about technology. Uh, there's a number of other companies I'm involved with, but probably the other two worth mentioning are the Global Mobility Alliance, which I'm vice chair of. So mm-hmm. that is uh, not a company, but a, as, as its name in, implies, a, a, an alliance of like-minded automobile clubs from around the world. So it's effectively the top 25 to 30 okay. clubs. Between us, we've got about 150 million members, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we are very commercially minded. So we get together and meet very regularly, run seminars and programs, and compare and share uh, information quite regularly. It's mm-hmm. an unusual thing about our sector. Um, we're all in the same business, but we're not competitors generally, So whether it be within countries or, or internationally. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of time spent meeting with one another and uh, sharing information, doing business together. And the last one is I'm a director of the Confederation of Australian Motorsport, so uh-huh. the governing body for motorsport in Australia. Uh-huh. And interestingly, CAMS and AAA, those the two boards that I'm a member of, are the two membership arms in Australia of the FIA, which is the International Association. Right. That represents uh, both motorsport and automobile clubs. Uh-huh. So in each country, there's generally two parts okay. here in Australia. We have CAMS and AAA, and I'm the director of both. Right. And one of the things I don't think you mentioned was also being a director of the RACQ Foundation. Yes. uh, I'm proud to say uh, I set up the RACQ Foundation uh, as a response to the floods in 2011. Mm -hmm. I went to my board and I said, I think we really need to step up and do something here. Uh, Quite different that uh, we've been putting aside members' funds for a very long time for a rainy day. Well, here's the rainy day. Sure. Let's do it. And I got the board to approve a $20 million package. Mm-hmm. Uh, $7 million of that went into, uh, sorry, $8 million of that went into the foundation. Okay. $2 million was given to the state government as mm-hmm. part of their uh, fund that they'd established at the time. And the other $10 million went into our insurance business to make ex gratia payments to right. members who were not okay. as well covered as they sure. would have liked to have been by their insurance policy. So that was quite a unique thing that we Sure. Did. And what was the money, the $8 million in the foundation <laughs> used for? The the foundation has uh, two arms, um, two charities, and uh, very specifically that money can only be used for supporting community groups mm-hmm. uh, within Queensland mm-hmm. to get back up on their feet following a disaster of some right. kind. okay. So we've now supported, I, th- I think it's about 115, 116 different community groups okay. right across Queensland with amounts of up to $200,000 at a time. Mm-hmm to help them rebuild mm-hmm. their facilities or undertake programs right. to support so the, their communities. the flood was the catalyst, but since then there have been other things that Oh, yes, and it'll in. be ongoing. So right. the board is now Fantastic. committed to continue to fund it mm-hmm. with an annual uh, uh, top-up 
of at least half a million dollars more okay. needed, okay. depending on what happens. So we mm-hmm. have another series of major weather events, then obviously the foundation will get very busy again. So it does tend to, to go in um, sync with what's going on. Mm-hmm in terms of those uh, sorts of disasters, which as we know, living in Queensland, come around fairly regularly. So we believe the foundation will play a, a very important role long into the future. Fantastic. So it sounds like with all of that, you're a busy man. <laughs> well, just the RACQ business on its own is um, is very large. Not many people really understand because we're not a listed company mm-hmm. and we're not reported. Mm-hmm. It's not well understood. Right. But we are very diverse. Sure. And quite large. So... We recently had an exercise done to see where we'd rank in the ASX if we were listed, and we came in at about six, between 65 and 68. Right. Okay. Uh, so we'd be in the in the top 100 uh-huh. and growing. Uh-huh. So that's something that we're quite proud of because sure. as a mutual, our, our objectives are not really about making money. Uh-huh. Uh, they're they're social rather than financial. Uh-huh. But we do have to make money in order to do. The things that were there absolutely to, to do on behalf of our members okay fantastic well look I, from reading through your bio it sounds like you've had a very interesting and diverse career but why don't we start off where it all began and uh, have a chat to us about where you were born and mum and dad brothers and sisters early life etc well it is a bit interesting I, my brother and my sister i've got a brother and a sister so they were both born in kuma in the snowy mountains i would have been too except for the fact that my father was traveling around overseas at the time this is in 1955 right and the, my parents are both from sydney my father was in the navy during the war uh and as it since turned out we found out after 50 years it elapsed that he was a member of the the z special unit or the okay. z force right so an interesting time of it during sure. the war and uh, after the war he wanted to get away from everything so he joined the snowy mountain scheme okay and uh, he went up there as one of the initial staff members and uh, lured my mother up there, mm-hmm. married and brought her up from Sydney. And his job was to travel around the world uh, recruiting uh, engineers and tradesmen from right. all over war-torn Europe, okay. basically, and bringing them out to Australia to, mm-hmm. to help build uh, the Snowy Mountains scheme. So because he was away overseas, my mum went to Sydney to have me, and I was born in, in Manly in Sydney, where the uh, family, our family comes from. Right. And uh, ultimately, they moved back from Cooma to Canberra uh, in the 1960s, which is where I went to school initially. So you were the oldest? I'm the middle one. The middle, okay. older sister, younger brother. Right, okay. And uh, yeah, so I was, uh, my initial schooling was uh, in Canberra. Growing up there in the 60s was interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in 1969, my father took a job with uh, Civil and Civic, or Lend-Lease, in Sydney, and we all moved back to Sydney, and I ended up going to school, my senior school years there. Mm-hmm. at uh, St. Aloysius College at Milsons Point, which is a great location for a school, particularly if you're into daydreaming, because right. you can look out any window and there's a marvellous view of the harbour. Uh-huh. Were you a daydreamer? I was at times, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so after school? Uh, I went straight from school to university, yeah. and uh, I started out doing a commerce degree at University of New South Wales. I then wanted to do industrial relations, because this is in the 70s, and uh, industrial issues were were everywhere, mm-hmm. saw it as a growth industry really, so sure. I switched across to do that, which was an arts degree then, and uh, I got a job uh, with a company called Blue Circle Southern Cement, which mm-hmm. is an interesting company, uh, part owned by BHP and part owned by uh, Blue Circle Industries in the UK in those days, so it was quite a large company, and uh, had a very diverse and vertically integrated uh, structure, so they not only produced and distributed cement, but they actually owned 
the coal mines that provided the coal to fire okay. the kilns. They owned the railway lines to take the coal from the coal mine to the right. cement works. They owned the quarries. They even had steam trains that dated back forever. So cement industry is a very old industry. Sure. And quite decentralised. So they're mostly in country towns all over Australia. So I found that a fascinating uh, experience and that's where, where I cut my teeth mm-hmm. and decided while I was there to study law. Right. Because I enjoyed the advocacy part of the industrial relations work. So uh, I got married quite young mm-hmm. and um, embarked on uh, my legal studies, which I did part-time. And uh, I don't think you can do it these days, but I did my law degree in three years part-time when I think it was four years full-time. Wow. So I was able to do that because I was I had a uh, an employer that supported me and a young wife who supported me as well. Right. Attending lectures if I couldn't to take notes for me. Oh, is that right? So to this day, she still claims part ownership of my degree. <laughs> Fair enough. And so, uh, and at that point, you went into Wilmot. Uh, well, no, there's a couple of steps in between. So I was working for Blue Circle, and then I went to the bar. I was a uh, industrial barrister for a brief period of time, and okay. then Wilmot acquired me uh, because they needed uh, an in-house. Uh, industrial lawyer. Right. They had uh, very, very diverse operations and a lot of issues. So that was a very exciting period to mm-hmm. be joining them. This okay. was in the mid-80s. Uh, Warmold by then was the world's biggest fire protection company by a very long way, probably five or six times its nearest competitor. Okay. And they operated in a uh, huge range of different industry sectors, manufacturing, distribution, contracting, fire protection, security, uh Fiber optics. They mm-hmm. had the Australian Optical Fiber Research Company. Submarines. Okay. Um, we put together the uh, consortium to build the uh, new Australian submarines, the Collins class submarines. So mm-hmm. I was part of that too. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of interesting things happened while I was at Warmworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also taken over, bought, sold, right, all kinds of things. And and within that business was when you moved away from your core discipline into more of a broader general management type role. I did yeah. again by accident. Okay, uh, I was giving a lot of advice, not all of it was being taken very efficiently. So uh, my boss at the time, Bob Mansfield, who uh, went on to found Optus and mm-hmm. later on was uh, chairman of uh, Telstra and. I think briefly chair of Fairfax, he said to me one day, look, uh, if you're getting frustrated with your advice not being taken, why don't you step across and run one of these businesses and do it yourself? And I thought, well, all right, I will. Okay. So with his backing, I did. Right. And uh, really didn't look back. And would you describe him as being, you know, a critical early mentor during your career? He was one of them, yeah. Right. I I think there's been a few. uh, Three that I'd call out. Uh, One was my very first boss when I was at Blue Circle, mm-hmm. a guy by the name of Mike Mulhall, who was a, just a wonderful human being and a very, very insightful person, very good people person. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from him about being able to move from the shop floor to the boardroom mm-hmm. in the same day yep. and be able to communicate just as effectively mm-hmm. at one end as the other, which is something you've got to do in an industrial relations role, or you did in those days anyway. And I learned a lot from him how to do that, mm-hmm. and uh, that was pretty important to me later on. Bob Mansfield really taught me that uh, I could do other things, pushed me, Uh uh, took me outside my normal boundaries. And then later on there was another great mentor uh, who I can talk about a bit further down the track if you like. No worries. And so you were with Wimbledon for about five years? I think it was seven. Seven, okay. And so what uh, took you out of that business then? Uh, Well... Wormald was uh, effectively sold to okay. Tyco mm-hmm. um, to a guy called Dennis Kozlowski who 
not long afterwards ended up in jail, but that's a <laughs> that's a whole other story. But sure. Yeah, it, it, it was going through an interesting period of time. Whilst I was there, a bid was made for the company by Spalvins back in the day when he did all that. Okay. Uh, that that bid was defended by bringing in a fellow by the name of Lee Ming Ti. Mm-hmm. Uh, he controlled and ran the company for a little while. Uh, he was then bought out by Real Corp, which is the Bob Mansfield um, team. Mm-hmm. They'd recently uh, taken Hygienic Lily and repackaged it as a lily pack and sold it and made a lot of money. They did the same with Sunbeam Victor and they thought they'd do the same with the Warmold. Mm-hmm. That didn't really work out because in the middle was the stock market crash of 87. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, they were then removed by institutions who took control of the company, which was a piece of Australian corporate history, really. Mm-hmm. And they brought their own man in, John Slee, who'd previously run Ream, and I was made his executive assistant. Okay. And together we went about uh, restructuring the company for the next year and a half until right. Bob Mansfield and Kay got back in. Okay. Supported by Peter Scanlon, Basil Sellers, those guys. So it's some pretty interesting people that I, I, I was sort of um, in and around at the time. And right. Uh, we were in and out of uh, out of court. We were in and out of aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were uh, dealing with banks. We um, we had an issue with uh, our, our borrowings at the time. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of uh, Swiss franc borrowings with negative pledge covenants that nearly okay. sent the company broke. So it was some pretty interesting stuff that I got involved in. A trial by high fire. corporate stakes, and uh, eventually then the deal was done to, to sell Warmel to mm-hmm. Tyco, but along the way I was sent to Queensland okay. uh, to do some deals up here, mm-hmm. basically to buy out the smaller players in the market, in the fire protection market, and it's while I was here that uh, the sale of Tyco occurred, so mm-hmm. I bailed out uh-huh. and uh, went back to Sydney, which I wanted to do, mm-hmm. although I ultimately realised I really wanted to be in Queensland, which yep. is another part of the story, but sure. we've come here under force, really. Right. Um, for a period of about uh, just under 18 months mm-hmm. and uh, then went back to Sydney. Okay. And then uh, uh, joining uh, a couple of businesses in fairly quick succession. Mm. So what had happened was one of the people I worked with at Warmold, uh, Kim Godson, had left before I did and uh, he'd taken over the running of the Atlas Steels Group mm-hmm. and he effectively lured me back there. Okay. And the Atlas Steels Group had a couple of divisions, one of which was called Gilbert Lodge. Mm-hmm. He took me in to run that and restructure that, which mm-hmm. is what my expertise had become in Warmold. I was the restructure guy. I was okay. the guy that was taken into turnaround businesses or rationalise them, which mm-hmm. was a, another way of saying yep. um, make the tough decisions and right. carry them out. And he brought me in there to run Gilbert Lodge, which is a fascinating company. They are uh, Australia's biggest distributor of uh, specialised industrial equipment, um, CNC machine tools, all that sort of stuff. It was a whole other world to me and Mm -hmm. uh, got involved with some very big Japanese companies. Ended up having to uh, sue one of them, which Mm -hmm. was a unique experience, suing a Japanese company in Japan. Right. And winning. Okay. Which, again, was pretty rare. Uh, and I did that, and then he brought me across into the steels division side of Atlas Steels, which is the biggest uh, importer distributor of specialty steels in Australia, so mm-hmm. stainless steel and all of the specialty steels, and I did a number of different jobs there for him, but eventually the lure of Queensland was too strong, and right. I, I looked for a way to get back up right. here. So you're, uh, you brought your family here, and they, <clears throat> they felt that Queensland was the place they wanted to grow up. My wife and I decided, yeah, our boys were very young when we first came here, and we thought if there's a place we'd like to raise them, this is it. And we also realised the opportunity to have a lifestyle here that we wanted um, was real, whereas in Sydney it was just a dream. So we found a way and made the move and came back up here in the exact date, 1992, I think. With Atlas or with Incitec? 
within Satec. Right. So again, okay. um, I just uh, I've never been unemployed in my life. Thank God and touch wood. Uh, I was approached uh, by a headhunter, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I went for the interview and got the job, and mm-hmm. I went to run the Chemtrans division of Insotec, which was then Australia's, in fact, one of the world's biggest uh, dangerous goods transport companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a huge fleet of trucks and um, containers for both sea and rail. We did explosives transport, all the dangerous chemicals. Mm-hmm. And we also had a company in Thailand, okay. which was a little bit unique. So right. I had seven years as deputy chairman of a Thai transport company. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then on to... Um Growforce. Yeah, so what happened there was uh, while I ran Chemtrans, again, it was a bit of a rationalisation exercise and I sold parts of it off to narrow it down to the core business and ultimately um, resulted in me needing to find something else to do. So there was Uh a brief period while I ran the uh, HR and people functions within Insitech during a major rationalisation phase that uh, Orica was going through. So Uh if you didn't know, Insitech a listed public company, but 51% owned by mm-hmm. ICI and then Orica. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, more than that, it was about 78% ultimately. So yeah, two public companies, listed public companies. And uh, I did that HR job for a while and then I was appointed as managing director and CEO of Growforce, which was another listed public company, mm-hmm. which Insitec owned 51% of, okay. so just enough to control it. Right. And they put me in there as their guy, but uh-huh. it very quickly became... An interesting situation because uh, I saw my role uh, as managing director in a in a, in a quite a um, purest way, I suppose. I'm trying to find the right words here. I found myself at odds with my major shareholder right. quickly. You, there was a, you felt <clears throat> a bit conflicted. Yeah, oh, my job was to look after all shareholders, not just one. Sure. And uh, that one shareholder was a major supplier to the business. Right. And uh, they were hammering me hard to get better results. And the okay. simple answer was the best way to get better results was to uh, get a different supplier. Right. Or get that supplier to change their pricing model. Not a great message anyway, to send. Uh, that story was quite interesting because that's where I met. In fact, no pun intended, but so I met John Story, okay. who was a independent director mm-hmm. at that point, and uh, Greyforce had been previously a cooperative, mm-hmm. so a lot of grower shareholders. Okay. It was an agricultural uh, supply company, mm-hmm. supplying fertilizers and other and, and chemicals and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, we really uh, took it upon ourselves to say to the major shareholder, we'll either agree to the change or sell, right. and they decided to sell, so we did a... Uh, very quietly done um, reverse takeover merger with um, Rural Co. Mm-hmm. So Rural Co. was bigger than us, but mm-hmm. they weren't a listed company. We mm-hmm. were, so we we took them over, but in reality right. they ended up owning us. And yes. So uh, that was a very interesting exercise, mm-hmm. into which I was out of a job because right. they, they didn't need two CEOs. So. And then it looked like from that point you had a couple of years as a more of a portfolio non-executive director? Yeah, I wanted a bit of a change then. I okay. really had enough of the big corporate mm-hmm. <coughs> world and uh, I'd been through quite a few interesting experiences. So I just decided to uh, try my hand at a few different things and I ended up uh, doing a bit of consulting uh, and I ended up working for a uh, high net worth individual who was, uh, had recently sold his business that he'd spent his lifetime building up and wanted to move into a 
an investment portfolio, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked together with him for a couple of years, which was really interesting. Okay. And uh, we we bought a number of companies and restructured them, the sort of thing that I mm-hmm. I liked doing, and uh, did that for a little while, mm-hmm. and uh, plus a few other little bits and pieces on the side of you know consultancy work here mm-hmm. and there, but. I realised after after a while it wasn't really for me. Right, and then um, into Metal Storm. Yeah, again, um, not quite a uh, not not, not uh, intended or designed. Right. Yeah, uh, I got a, I was on. I had a couple of little board seats that I was mm-hmm. on, and I got a phone call one day from an acquaintance, uh, Terry O'Dwyer, who was on the board of Metal Storm. He said, "Look, we need someone to come across and help us raise capital. Could you do that? Yeah, on a one or two day a week basis." Right. And I said, okay. "Yeah, I've got that sort of time available." Mm-hmm. I'll do it. So I went across there and uh, three and a half years, really, I worked mm. there and it uh, became very quickly not a two-day-a-week job, but sure. seven days a week. I remember at the time mm. that business was, uh, because of the kind of um, space that they were operating in and being some very innovative technology, yeah, they, they, they were in the paper almost oh, on a daily basis. Yeah, not always for a good reason, I no. think, unfortunately. No. Can, can now say because the company's defunct, mm-hmm. which is very unfortunate. But when I went there, uh, it was clearly a company that had a marvellous technology that, that was real mm-hmm. and had a lot of potential, but it had been undercapitalised from day one and mostly uh, funded by mum and dad shareholders. Mm-hmm. There were really no institutional investors in there apart from one. Mm-hmm. And uh, their big issue was they never had enough money to do what they needed to do, mm. and they were trying to do too many things. So right. there was a bit of a battle with the... Uh, the founding shareholder and the inventor mm-hmm. that went on for a while and uh, I, I ran all over the world doing presentations to potential investors to try to get them to come on board and help fund the company's growth. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, working hard to narrow the focus of the company so they could you know, just really get down to two or three things it could do really well rather mm-hmm. than trying to do all the things it potentially could do because mm-hmm. that, the technology was so marvellous that it was capable of doing many, many things. Mm. But in order to become commercial, I needed to focus on just one or two. Mm. And so that took you into your current role? Yes. Again, I was headhunted, uh, sitting there one day thinking, don't really want to do this anymore. Right. For those that don't know, Metal Storm was, was uh, developing a revolutionary um, ballistic system, so mm-hmm. building weapons. That's right. And I uh, had a little bit of a philosophical issue with that. Right. Uh, but I'm, having said that, I did meet some very fascinating people. I probably oh, sure. should just add that. that uh, who I learned a lot from. So when I went there, the chairman of the board, Bill Owens, was a retired vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was a retired four-star U.S. admiral. Okay. Uh, the deputy chairman was a retired four-star general and ex-head of the um, all of the special forces in the U.S., mm-hmm. Wayne Downing. And while I was there, Wayne left the board and became the national security advisor to George Bush okay. for a year. And then he left that job and came back on our board. Right. So pretty fascinating time. We had an office here in Brisbane and one in Arlington, Virginia, so I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time over in, in Washington. Okay. And um, it was just a whole other world, you know, dealing with the U.S. military, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, defense industry, and DARPA, which is the Defense Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is a specially funded uh, group in the United States that mm-hmm. is behind some of the major developments that we now take for granted, like the internet. And mm-hmm. Stealth fighters and other things, and uh, we were the only Australian company at that time, and I still think to date that ever had a DARPA contract. Right. So it was something pretty special and operated at a very high level, 
of uh, confidentiality, etc. I bet. So those were very interesting times, but mm-hmm. I still felt I wanted to get out of it. I could also see that the company was not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. The technology was going to succeed, but the company wasn't. Mm-hmm. And one day I got a phone call from a, a headhunter. He said, we've got, we're recruiting for this job at RACQ. Would, would you be interested? And I said, no, why would I want to do that? Right. Not knowing anything at all about RACQ. But in the end, he convinced me to go to the interview, and uh, I did. Uh, my curiosity was, was tweaked a bit more and I went to a second interview and I was offered the job and I took it. Okay. Still, even till my very first day in the job, I hadn't even bothered to drive out and look at where the head office was. Right. I'd done a lot of research, but even then I really didn't fully understand it. So it took me only a couple of weeks in the job to work out what a gem mm-hmm. RACQ was. It, uh, you know, it was quite different to what it is now, mm-hmm. uh, but it was still... Uh, a marvellous organisation then, always has been, but, mm-hmm. but flew under the radar. Mm-hmm. And so when you first stepped into the role, what was the mandate? The mandate from the board really was to uh, take RACQ to the next stage. Uh, my predecessor, Alan Terry, had done a wonderful job of moving it really from the days of a mutual run by a council of managers to a mutual run by a board. So he really brought in some uh, a new governance model uh-huh. uh, and uh, got the organisation into a very good financial position. Uh-huh. My job really was to take it to the next stage, to modernise it and uh, expand it. Okay. And uh, it, it certainly needed that. When I uh-huh. got there, uh, our main site out at Eight Mile Plains, there were eight buildings and lots of departments and divisions, but they all were in silos. All the doors in between were locked. All the walls were right. grey okay. with black and white photos of the past. The, right. the floors were blue lino like out of a hospital. Uh, we had the funny old logo with a circle and the crown and, and our, our vehicles were an odd sort of orangey yellow colour with these mm-hmm. funny bug lights that came out. It was just quite old fashioned right. and, yeah. and really needed to be refreshed. Okay. So we embarked on a major refresh program mm-hmm. uh, as a result of which we uh, totally up. up updated the brand, mm-hmm. uh, the logo, the colour scheme, the uniforms, the vehicles, the, the, the stores, everything. And that was a major, major project, uh, which I believe is very successful. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we wanted to do was make RACQ an employer of choice, not mm-hmm. have the sense that I had when I was asked if sure. I wanted to go there, why would I want to work there? I actually wanted the best people mm-hmm. in Queensland that want to work there, if not in Australia. And to do that, we needed to create something that people wanted to be part of. So. Right. Uh, again, I think we've been reasonably successful with that. Oh, that's interesting. It's taken a long time to do it. So, so what would you say were some of the critical initiatives to uh, enable you to be perceived as an employer of choice? Well, well back in those days, we one, we didn't promote ourselves. Right. Uh, we didn't really have the public image that we deserved. Mm-hmm. A lot of people didn't really understand who we were and what we did. Okay. A lot of, a lot of people thought we were a government or semi-government organisation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of work was put into, and a lot of effort was put into promoting our story mm-hmm. better. Uh, we beefed up our advocacy function, we beefed up our media function, we did a lot more. It's not just about running television commercials, mm-hmm. it's more than that. Uh, but we are the biggest publisher in Queensland, always have been, okay. with the Road Ahead magazine with a, a readership of nearly 1.6 million people. Right. Know, we had all the tools. Sure. Uh, but interestingly, within the staff, we didn't have any performance management systems. People were there for forever if they wanted mm-hmm. to be. There was no one ever losing their job for, for performance, mm-hmm. uh, they'd just be redeployed. So we changed all that, mm-hmm. really wanted to change the culture to one where people were really, really proud of what RACQ did, mm-hmm. but also how it did it. And that took some years to bring about. We okay. also had to remove a lot of dead wood mm-hmm. and uh, really lift our standards. So we lifted our operating standards to quite a demanding level mm-hmm. and insisted on achieving it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we wanted to be the best. 
we are world's best practice for roadside assistance so the main measure there is the rate at which you repair people on the roadside so if you break okay. them down the main thing you want is to get going is sure to give you a perspective in the united states the average uh, roadside repair rate is 55%. That means 55% of the time they'll get you going, 45% of the okay. time they'll have to be towed away. Yep. Our roadside repair rate at RACQ is 94%, right. the world's highest. In The average in Europe is about 85%. Mm-hmm. Although I imagine a bit of that would be completely out of your control at the end of the day if the, the vehicles... Well, you never get 100%. Sure. But in a state the size of Queensland, mm-hmm. with the long roads and the sparse population... It's even more extraordinary to mm-hmm. achieve a result like that. If you were achieving it, say, in Victoria, you're probably less surprised because mm-hmm. it's, you know, such a small estate. So, so what, are, what are the things you needed to do in order to lift it to Well, we've invested very heavily in uh, the best equipment, uh, the best training, mm-hmm. the best communication systems, and we've searched the world for the best operating model. Mm-hmm. So we've looked at what model works best, and we've come up with the one that we use. Okay. So, for example... Uh, every one of our roadside patrol vehicles carries between 18 and 25 batteries on board mm-hmm. and we should know what kind of car we're going to so make sure that we've got the right kind of battery on board when we come out to most other uh, automobile clubs and roadside service providers around Australia and around the world mm-hmm. will come out and if you need a battery then I'll have to call someone right okay. okay so little things like that sure. that, that we do which come at an expense mm-hmm. uh, we still proudly have one of the lowest uh, mm-hmm. incident rate costs or costs per incident sorry of all the clubs in australia mm-hmm. and, and around the world as well so we're very efficient and we're okay. very effective and okay. we're very very proud of that right and you mentioned that uh one of the benefits of the type of business you're in is that you can be openly communicating with your uh, peers across the world and yes. you're not competing with them <laughs> so well, what, what would be an example of something that was being done elsewhere that you looked at and you went well that's really great let's adopt that and also what's an example of something that you've done that has been adopted elsewhere well i'll, I'll answer the second part first because there's a program here called free to go okay. the free to go program was invented by racq as a way of getting younger people in as members uh, particularly as they're starting to learn to drive right and the way we do that is we go into the schools with the permission of the department of education and we can talk to students about what it means to get their license and so on and we offer them the first couple of years of uh, their membership for free okay. then at half price then full price as right. they go through the, the age cycle that program has now been adopted by all other clubs in australia mm-hmm. and about another 10 or 15 around the world mm-hmm. all calling it the free to go program right. so that's a great example sure. where uh, we develop it and we give it away for free we don't license it we don't mm-hmm. sell it we don't try and make money yeah. out of it because you know as i said we're all in the same game equally there are many great ideas like that that we've adopted mm-hmm. from other clubs whether it be uh, a, a product or a service or a way of uh, putting in another tier of membership. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of great examples, mm-hmm. and uh, we're not afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. There's also examples where we've, we've commercialised things as well. So there's another company which, uh, up until recently, I was, I was on the board of called Club Assist, which the six Australian clubs own, uh, which produces and distributes car batteries to automobile clubs all over the world. Okay. We started it here, and we own that, and okay. it now operates in 70 countries. Mm-hmm. And we run that as uh, both a service and a, and a business, so mm-hmm. it makes quite decent dividends for sure. us. Sure. Okay. 
Now, uh, I suppose coming to yourself, uh, you've had a career where you've uh, obviously through your performance and through achieving outcomes has enabled you to get to the point where you've uh, stepped into this role in 10 years now as CEO of the RACQ. What would you say are some of the things that you've had to work on personally to grow your own leadership skills in order to uh, uh, survive and thrive? Yeah, I think because it's such a large organisation, as I said, I probably didn't really give the dimensions um, to you. Uh, one of my issues has been about being able to d- delegate more. Mm-hmm. You just can't be too hands-on in the way you run mm-hmm. it. Uh, but we are we have uh, over 2,000 direct staff, about another 1,500 agents and contractors who wear our uniform every day. We mm-hmm. run 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week, every, every week of the year. We, no, we never close. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a very diverse portfolio from uh, roadside assistance, home assistance, through all the different insurance products. Uh, we've got one of the biggest travel businesses. We've got the oldest travel licence in Queensland. Right. We're the biggest reseller of movie tickets in mm-hmm. Australia, so mm-hmm. in our ticketing business. So very diverse range of operations and things that operate 24 hours a day. We've got a very large uh, technology division. We've got a very large advocacy division, and our publishing business alone is quite substantial. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different activities going on. You can't be an expert in any of them. So mm-hmm. what I've had to learn is it really is about being the conductor of the orchestra and not, not having to be an expert in every mm-hmm. instrument. Mm-hmm. And don't need to be, don't want to be, sure. can't. And so the true, that's a great analogy for me because uh, the conductor of the orchestra um, you know, needs to settle the score, the music, with the team. They've all got to be allocated their tasks that they've got to be expected to do their bit right mm-hmm. and work well together. Any large organisation that's important, but you've also got to build the culture and the disciplines. And uh, whilst I've done a bit of that in all the jobs I've done previously, this is the first time I've really got to use all of my skills and experience in one place mm-hmm. across a broad spectrum. And I found that bit the most interesting, really. So that's one part of it. The other part is this job's unusual in that there's a very big public policy element. So it's not just about okay. running the business side, or, mm-hmm. although that's significant. Uh, because we're a mutual and our goals are different, um, our purpose is social rather than financial, as I said earlier, but that doesn't mean we're not competitive and we're mm-hmm. not commercial. Mm-hmm. Quite the opposite, in fact. Sure. The best way I can explain it is that we 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 make money to do things rather than just doing things to make money. Mm-hmm. So it's a difference of purpose, not method. Uh, we're very commercial, we're very competitive, in fact, very competitive. And in order to get that balance right and get the right kind of people in to get the culture right is, is, has been a big challenge mm-hmm. in, in terms of leadership. It's not just about having people who get your results. Mm-hmm. It's about having people who will get your results in the right way for the right outcome, which is a bit different. Yeah. And so mutuals are not for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about driving to a, the biggest profit outcome you can get. Yeah, we yeah, make sure as much as we need, sure. not as much as we can make, mm-hmm. put it that way. And... What about in terms of developing your own skills? I mean, you, you did your uh, qualifications very early in your career. Um, you're moving in a business which is growing and becoming more and more complex with lots of different moving parts and so on. How do you ensure that you're keeping yourself current in terms of leadership um, capability and methodology, yeah. etc.? Well, I've been, a, I was up until recently a member of uh, a CEO uh, syndicate here in Brisbane right. for about 15 years, which I found... Uh, and that was the CEO Institute. I know there's a number of different ones. Yeah, I've had Ray Weeks on the podcast. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I go all the way back with Ray. I think right. uh, I'm, if not the longest serving, one of the longest serving members of the CEO Institute. Right. I recently retired from it. Uh-huh. 
mainly because I just couldn't fit the time in. I found myself missing too many sure, meetings, and yeah. you get to a stage where it's hard to take anything out of it. Absolutely. Anymore. But uh, that was a fantastic uh, support structure for me right mm-hmm. through all the different career changes I made over the time I've lived here in Brisbane. And a great place to be able to go and uh, discuss things openly with people who've got probably the same issues or concerns mm-hmm. that you do, but with complete safety. Mm-hmm. And the thing you learn as you move up the management ladder uh, is each stage of leadership until you get to the top is more and more lonely. That's true, mm-hmm. what people say. It's lonely mm-hmm. because you don't, you can't really discuss your inner thoughts and fears with your team because mm-hmm. you look weak. And if you discuss it with your board, you look weak. Mm-hmm. So where do you go? You've got to have someone you can talk to. Other than your wife. Other than your wife, who's always <laughs> going to give me advice. Sure. You know, um, she has the same level of understanding, and that's the issue. Right. But I think the uh, the ability to be able to do that is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And I would say to anybody, if you're not in one of those, get mm-hmm. in one of those. They're all as good as each other. Mm. It's more about, in my case, it was it was actually the mixture of people that were in my syndicate. Mm-hmm. We were very fortunate to have a really, really good group of people. We've stayed very tight to this day. We've still mm-hmm. stayed close okay. close friends and, and willing to hap- okay. happily help each other whether we're formally part of uh, the network or not. So that's one thing. The other thing that I think has been really important is, is staying very active within the uh, AICD. Okay. And I require all of my senior team to mm-hmm. have done the AICD right. course and to be accredited. And we require all our board members to do mm-hmm. it. And I think it's really critical that mm. you, know, you have that level of knowledge and understanding sure uh, you know we we've also got a very good uh, leadership development program internally mm-hmm. within RACQ that we do bring people in to speak to our, our team regularly we also send people out okay and so we have a, a, a number of programs that we use particularly overseas which I've done and I've sent my team to mm-hmm. so we've now got a bit of an alumni from mm-hmm. we use the Cranfield uh, management school in the UK uh, mainly as, as well as some others mm-hmm. so that's the way I've done it sure but I think it's critical that you stay grounded mm-hmm. to um, your own organisation though throughout that you can get a bit too academic if you're mm-hmm. not careful mm-hmm. and so for me it's been mainly about uh, making sure I don't just sit behind the desk mm-hmm. getting out and about mm-hmm. with the staff as much as I can it's getting harder and harder these days sure I did a much better job of it in my earlier days than I am now, I have to admit. Okay. And so when you think about your role now, uh, there's obviously lots of elements that you really enjoy about it. What would you say are some of the things that you don't really enjoy? Uh, not having enough time, really, to cover all of the things that I'd like to. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's so many opportunities and there are so many things that could be getting done and I find that a little bit frustrating, but you just have to control yourself and be focused mm-hmm. uh, so I do do that mm-hmm. but there's an entrepreneurial side to me that you know would like to try new things mm-hmm. and uh, I find it a bit frustrating in our industry in that some of the biggest opportunities actually lie in collaboration mm-hmm. cooperation even consolidation in our sector between our organization and our sister organizations and it's mm-hmm. very frustrating that um, I, I think I'm I wouldn't say I'm alone in my right. thinking, but I'm probably ahead of the rest in thinking that we do need to be coming together more. Okay. Because I can see the both the opportunity and also the threat if we don't. So mm-hmm. I find that frustrating. Mm-hmm. And at times we talk about herding cats. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it, it's like trying to get six kittens to sit in the wheelbarrow and stay there. You know. <laughs> uh, but when we do, it's very successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, more and more, and increasingly more often, we mm-hmm. are able to actually get. Mm-hmm. 
things done cooperatively, and I think that's the future. So that's one thing I found okay. uh, uh, frustrating and annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, it's actually hard to find anything. I'm very fortunate that I have to say I am very busy and I get quite tired because I'm so busy, but I love everything that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing I'm doing I, I wish I wasn't doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the real issue for all of us in, in this business right now is being able to keep the focus where it needs to be. Right. And that's a challenge. Okay. You know? And for an entrepreneurial person like me, I need my team around me to say, hey, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, great, we could do those 10 things, but mm-hmm. why don't we just do this? Sure. Now, this uh, podcast is largely being listened to by people who are aspiring to be CEOs or C-suite executives. Um, what are the qualities that you look for within your team for people that you identify to want to fast-track them to more senior roles? What, what are some of the things that are really stand out to you as being attributes worthy of investing in? Yeah, look, I, I think my view's changed over the years. I think I'd probably say now I'd, I'd employ more for attitude than experience. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to be able to fit into... You've got to look the part you want to play. You've got to understand the team that you want to play in mm-hmm. and, and, and how that team operates. So attitude is really important. If you've mm-hmm. got somebody who's highly qualified and highly experienced with the wrong attitude, they'll destroy your team. Mm-hmm. So fitting in is really critical. Sure. I think reliability is another huge factor for me. I'd rather have someone who I know I can rely on mm-hmm. than someone who's got the greatest CV. Okay. Uh, importantly, what I also look for is scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Or, and I call it scar capital. Right. You know, the more hard experiences you've been through, yep. the more valuable you are. Yep. I don't want to just know someone's success stories. Mm-hmm. I want to know the tough things they've been through, mm-hmm. uh, the things that didn't work, how they handle it, because that's what you need to be able to rely on. Mm-hmm. Like, life isn't perfect. Something's sure. going to go wrong somewhere. You want to know you've got people on your team that are going to deal with that mm-hmm. and deal with it appropriately. So i look for that. Okay. So I'd be saying to people looking to, to get up the ladder, uh, demonstrate you're prepared to have a go. Demonstrate that you're not perfect, but that when you've you know, had something go wrong, mm-hmm. you've learnt from it. My so father told me that uh, the first time you make uh, uh, a mistake, you're a learner. The second time you make the same mistake, you're a loser. Right. <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying, you know, it's all right to make a mistake a couple of times, as long right. as you're actually learning and growing from that. And I think that's that's important. I've heard a similar expression if uh, somebody lets you down or is dishonest with you, you say, well, first time was your fault, second time's my fault. Yes. Yeah. That's another way of looking mm-hmm. at it from a leader's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think the last really important element for me is you've got to be a people person. Mm. You know, in the end, you can be really good at lots of things, but if you don't have EQ, you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And so is that an attribute that you've consciously worked on for yourself? I have, and I've, I think I've been very fortunate in my upbringing mm-hmm. that I got a lot of that anyway from my parents, where I went to school, but also my early part of my career that, mm-hmm. that I talked about when I was in the industrial oh, yeah. relations yeah. game, you know, being down on the shop floor, mm-hmm. really literally down on the shop floor, mm-hmm. and then, then up in the boardroom in the same day. Sure. Learning how to deal with different people, how to uh, present yourself, mm-hmm. how to speak, when to speak and when not to speak, mm-hmm. all of that, and I learned it the hard way. Mm-hmm. I think that stood me in good in, in good stead. But at the end of the day, really, when it comes down to it, if you're not if you don't have EQ, you can probably do a lot of senior roles, mm-hmm. but you're very unlikely to be mm-hmm. able to do the CEO's role. You might get the job, but you won't do it well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'll probably fail because in the end, like I said a bit earlier. When you're the CEO, you're the conductor of the orchestra, not a, not a player in it. And a lot of people find that very difficult to do. Mm. 
letting go and delegating with a complete autonomy. Yeah, I, again, another theory I've got is that probably most people, even though they won't admit it, prefer to be told what to do, prefer to be led rather sure. than lead. There's probably about 10% mm-hmm. who want to be leaders, and of those, about half can be. Mm-hmm. So it's not everyone, and I'm not saying, you know, leaders, and because I, mm. I'm a CEO, that it's an elite group. It's it's partly about your makeup as a person. Mm-hmm. It's partly about your education and your experience. And it's also partly about your attitude. Yeah, but uh, I think there are a lot of people who feel obliged to go towards CEO because they need to keep up with the giants as it's right. expected of them, whereas the reality is there's nothing wrong with being a follower, is no, there? absolutely nothing wrong at all. And yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I've got a couple of people I know who've said that they don't, they don't want to make that final step because mm-hmm. they're really happy where they are. Yeah. They know what the demands on a CEO are, and it's mm-hmm. not everything that's cut out to be. I've seen people come along to CEO syndicates and say, yes, I've just been promoted to CEO, and it's not what I thought it would be. Yeah. I'm really not liking it mm-hmm. uh, at all, mm. and uh, quite fearful of, of what it entails. And it's that loneliness factor, really. Mm-hmm. You can, it's a bit like becoming a parent. People tell you what it's like, but until you actually <laughs> become one, you don't really know. Sure. You know, and you think, oh, yeah, well, I'll be different. You know, right. I'll be able to sleep, or I'll be able to do this, or all right. do that. But uh, it, it is uh, quite often quite uh, um, radically different to what the expectation is mm-hmm. going in. I think that it, you know, that's a sign of emotional maturity to be able to say, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm quite happy to have a supporting role rather than, you know, step yeah. into the role of CEO as well. Cool. And so when you're looking at the future now, Ian, so what are the things that you're excited about, both in terms of uh, the opportunities for RACQ and also the opportunities for yourself professionally? Yeah, well, I think most of my professional opportunities now lie with RACQ, given okay. that you know, I'm now over 60 and I'm in the, you know, the tail end of my career, mm-hmm. and there's still a lot to be done here. It's a very exciting organisation. You know, we're we're growing substantially. Our revenues now over a billion dollars a year. Our, our profits are always uh, extremely good, and uh, we're continuing to grow the business. Our memberships now increased to nearly 1.6 million. So, uh-huh. um, what, more what than a third it? of all of all Queensland's population are, are, are a member of RACQ, wow. and uh, household penetration is over 60%. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's a a wonderful platform to work on. Sure. If you think about it, we've got a brand that everybody knows. Uh-huh. That's associated with trust and reliability and dependability, and, and uh, those are fantastic things for any CEO mm. to have an outstanding brand, uh, an outstanding infrastructure. So we, RACQ is uh, financially very healthy, mm-hmm. has no debt, net assets of over 1.2 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're a very well-run, very successful organisation with a lot of opportunity to do new and different things, and we have a mandate from our members to expand and grow our range of operations so uh-huh. it's very very exciting it's uh, we're not driven by share price we're uh-huh. not driven by analysts climbing all over us uh-huh. uh, we're driven by delivering really good outcomes for our members and that actually uh, is probably the best part of the job because I get to go home every day feeling really good about what my organization does uh-huh. and all of my staff feel that way they're either directly dealing with members and delivering value to them or they're helping someone else who does that uh-huh. And they can see us in the news every day, mm-hmm. in the news a lot every day, and almost always in a really positive way. So sure. there aren't, I just can't think of any right. other, it's a unique right. thing. And what and about when uh, you hang your hat up eventually as a CEO, do you have aspirations to then move into a, a portfolio career? Is that on your radar? I will if if I'm asked to. Okay. I think, uh, I have a very strong view that the best directors 
are people who aren't looking for the job and who have to be convinced to do it. Right. The worst ones are the ones who've got their hands up and they're right. searching for wow. it. They're probably in it for the money or the kudos. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's almost the same in the executive ranks. The really good people aren't looking for a job because they're probably in one. That's doing right. Doing a good job of what they're doing. So you've got to go and find them. I'll have to get you to pitch that when I'm selling executive <laughs> headhunting. <laughs> well, you know, I think it, that's just a reality. Sure. You know, if people are too eager, then mm-hmm. that's not a good thing. Mm. So from my point of view, I want to retire on the basis that you know I've done what I need to do. Yeah. And... Um, if I'm wanted mm-hmm. and I can add value, then I'll do it. Mm. But I also would encourage anybody thinking about it, go and do the AICD course. Absolutely. A big dose of reality mm-hmm. and ask yourself, why do you want to do it? Because mm-hmm. there's a significant risk involved. Indeed. For not so, a lot of return financially. For not a lot of return mm-hmm. and a lot of personal risk. So uh, for me, it would be, yeah, A, uh, someone would want, want to want me mm-hmm. and B, I'd want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd have to be meaningful to me. I must admit, I meet people looking to move or wanting to move into a portfolio career, and I ask some very similar questions. You know, what is it key motivator? But um, uh, it, it just seems that whether it's from the perspective of the mm-hmm. ego gratification or just wanting to remain relevant, yeah, uh, they well, sometimes see... it's a default position from a full-time job that they sure. can't get. You know, and I think that's mm-hmm. a bad thing too. Look. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to denigrate anybody who's doing it. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there who, who are professional directors who do a very, very good good job of it. Mm. There are some people out there who are doing it for the wrong reasons yep. and therefore aren't, aren't great directors. But that's like I don't want to be one of those. Sure, fair enough. We've talked a lot about work today. Uh, what are you doing uh, to keep yourself uh, energised and keep petrol in the tank when you're not at work? Uh, I love to walk these days. I don't swim much anymore. Right. Um, I used to sail a lot, but I sold the boat. Um, was an inter- other interesting part of this story was four years ago, I, I was having my annual, well, biannual corporate medical okay. at the same place with at the Ford clinic, with Toby Ford, right. that I'd been going to for about 15 years. And um, I'll cut this short, but I'll, they ultimately discovered that I had a uh, defect in my heart. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was there. Right. It was very serious. And uh, the cardiologist said to me, we don't get to see this condition too often in a live body, and certainly not one of your age. So I was rushed in and had uh, quite complicated open-heart surgery Mm -hmm. um, with odds of about 60-40 chance of success. I've forgotten the exact number. Right. Um, So that was quite uh, an experience. I bet. Uh, And I was quite surprised at how I dealt with it, Mm -hmm. which was very well. Mm Mm-hmm. I think on the basis that I felt I'd lived a good life and done well and it set my family up well, so whatever happened to me, mm-hmm. I wasn't too worried about. Right. I was more worried about them. Sure. Uh, but since then, I've got a very different attitude to things. And uh, But as a result of that, yeah, decided to not, uh, even though they fixed it and mm-hmm. it's all very good and all the checkups are great, I decided not to exert myself too physically. Fair anymore, so. so what would you say has been a significant shift in terms of the way you, that you're looking at your life from having had that experience? I worry less about things. You, know, you worry less. Worry less. Right, just, okay. You know, why worry about things you can't change? Sure. Um, or why even worry at all? I mean, life actually, uh, you know, it's true when you're lying there and you think, gee, you know, I could, I may not wake up from this. What mm. does that mean? Well, everything you own, everything you have, the experiences you've collected, whatever, don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. What All that really matters is mm. the relationships you have with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what's most important to me. Mm. So um, I'm far less materialistic. Okay. Um, I'm more about enjoying what I do mm-hmm. and who I do it with mm-hmm. than anything else. And so, yep, that has made a big difference. Okay. And uh, I just don't get as uptight as I used to. I mm-hmm. sleep better. 
but I'll probably work harder. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. You know, well, I mean, it's not surprising, is it? You know, no, you not go at through all. something like that, you have to sit and think a bit. Well, it uh, depends. You know, it depends. I mean, there's uh, certain people that I know who have the, the belief: he who dies with the, with the most toys wins. No. And uh, I think that uh, you know, it's a bit of a uh, uh, sad way to live your life. It is, and uh, I guess I've been very fortunate in that during that time I was doing the job with RACQ, which actually is about, as I said getting the pleasure every day that mm. what we're doing is important mm-hmm. what we're doing makes a difference to people's lives every day whether we're rescuing them on the roadside or mm-hmm. rescue helicopters picking them up from a, a, you know, an accident or we're paying out an insurance claim or just providing advice or mm-hmm. helping get better roads everything we're doing mm-hmm. is helping a lot of people mm. across Queensland and there's great pleasure in that mm. and that's really for me what it's about you know mm. we yeah we, we accomplish a lot we get good results we're proud of that too and I'm mm-hmm. really proud of the people that we produce and every now and then we'll lose someone to right. a bigger and better job but that's sure. also pleasing in a way because we've been a platform Absolutely. for their, their growth and their success mm-hmm. and I do enjoy that mm-hmm. I really do so I've got a lot to look back on and be uh, be proud of and, and happy about and that's what I reflect on rather than you know could I earn more could I sure. achieve more could I you know, mm-hmm. be as good as someone else you mm-hmm. know, it's not what it's about no well I appreciate you're a very busy man so before we wrap it up is there <laughs> any final thoughts or anything you'd like to leave with the audience uh, that we haven't discussed already today well not really well I suppose one I didn't mention one other great mentor I had was a fellow by the name of Jim Babin who was the CEO at, at uh, InSciTech when I went there and uh, Jim was a great mentor had a really good way of distilling things down into simple statements mm-hmm. you know and um, a few of them have always stuck in my mind what was and, one of the, the key ones? Well, a really simple one in business, you know, Jim used to like to say, it's, it's very simple, you know, P equals R minus C and don't forget it, which is, you know, profit equals revenue minus cost. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you do get a bit carried away with mm-hmm. the complexity of what you're doing and you forget those basic sure. principles. So yeah. he's very good at keeping you focused on, on, on the basics, even mm-hmm. in big business. And it was mm-hmm. big, big business, you know, big dollars at stake and big issues, but it still comes down to the fundamentals mm-hmm. of managing that and the cash. Right. Uh, another great one that I learnt from uh, this was Wayne Downing, who was the uh, the four star general. Uh, I said to him one day, "What's the difference between management and leadership?" And he said, uh, "Well, in the U.S. Army, uh, it's like this." He said, "If it breathes, uh, we lead it. If it doesn't breathe, we manage it." And I thought, oh, "Okay, that's an interesting <laughs> interesting perspective." Uh, but they were serious about that, sure. Know, and that's the way they they approach things. So there's a lot to be learnt from all these different mm-hmm. experiences, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how I've tried to right to go forward and uh, I don't think there's anything I've done that I regret doing mm-hmm. and that I haven't learnt something out of so although you know, no doubt you've got a bit of a scar resume I'm well, sure well I do but you don't get to choose your career path sure the reality is and people have said to me well how did you organise all that well I didn't mm-hmm. uh, it all happened in front of me and doors opened up and I either chose to walk through them or I didn't mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. I didn't sometimes I did mm-hmm. that's how it happened mm-hmm. well thanks very much for your time Ian <laughs> okay. and have a fantastic afternoon Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Well, thanks again for joining me on the RHA podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to having you along for future RHA podcasts. In the meantime, have a fantastic day.